Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Why did a black criminal defense attorney who fought against segregation in high school and battled racism in the courtroom, why did he volunteer to defend the First Amendment rights of an imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan? Our interview today is with David Baugh. David is a Richmond, Virginia-based attorney, and in 1998, while serving on the board of directors of the ACLU of Virginia, he grabbed national headlines when he volunteered to represent Barry Elton Black, then the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Earlier that year, Barry Black was charged with violating a Virginia statute that prohibited cross-burning after he and other Klansmen burned a cross on private property during a rally. Baugh took on Black's defense because he saw the prosecution and the statute itself as a violation of the First Amendment's free speech protections, protections that he held near and dear to his heart. The case would end up being a big one, winding its way up to the United States Supreme Court which struck down the statute in part as a violation of the First Amendment in the seminal 2003 case, Virginia v. Black. But David Baugh's story is more than just one court case. His father was a Tuskegee Airman, and from a young age, he was an outspoken advocate for civil rights, cutting his teeth during sit-ins fighting segregation. He even once accused a judge in court of taking race into account when sentencing people. Baugh is the second interview in our two-part series on Defending My Enemy. Two weeks ago, we sat down with journalist Glenn Greenwald and explored why people who vehemently oppose certain ideas nonetheless staunchly defend the rights of others to express them. As a young lawyer, Greenwald defended the First Amendment rights of neo-Nazis for many of the same reasons Baugh said he defended the First Amendment rights of Barry Black, to defend a beloved principle under attack, not a hateful person or ideology. So here's David Baugh on Defending My Enemy and his career-long fight in defense of the Bill of Rights. So, David Baugh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, as you know, our show is on the topic of defending my enemy. I know you're likely to take umbrage with uh, the specific wording of the topic choice and would prefer it to be defending the rights of my enemy. Uh, But carrying on in the tradition of former ACLU Executive Director Arya Nearer, you're known for your principled defense of the constitutional rights of those with whom you disagree. And perhaps the most prominent example of this was your legal defense uh, as a black criminal defense attorney of an imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Who, who was Barry Elton Black and how did you and this unlikely character come together? Well, back in those years, I was on the um, board of directors of the ACLU of Virginia. I was also on the legal advisory panel, which is a group of people, mostly lawyers, and whenever... Uh, citizens would write in and ask for ACLU support. Uh, we'd get presented these situations and we'd weigh in, we would decide whether or not to weigh in. And we'd, they'd flash them around our offices. Well, Mr. Black had been arrested over in the western part of the state. He and a, <clears throat> a group of Klansmen, uh, he was from Pennsylvania, had rented a piece of farmland and they came down to protest. And as part of that protest, they had a weenie roast or whatever it is on this property uh, with the permission of the owner. And uh, at the end of it, they lit this cross up, stood around in their regalia, and uh, it could be seen for miles. Well, a local deputy saw it and recognized that there was a 
Virginia statute saying you can't burn a cross like that with the intent to intimidate. And there's a presumption that when there is a cross burning, there's an intent to intimidate. And he arrested him. Well, after he was arrested, Mr. Black, he couldn't find an attorney over there, so he wrote into the ACLU and asked for some help. When I read it, I knew immediately, I mean, you cannot uh, suppress or you can't just cut out one form of language. I mean, Mr. Black certainly had the right to stand in the field and shout, I hate black people. He certainly had a right to hold up a sign. Well, under the law, he had the right to symbolically do the same thing. So he couldn't find an attorney. Um, and it's important that the First Amendment be preserved. So as a criminal lawyer, I said, I'll take the case. Little did I know it was going to be so big. Um, and and what, did, what did your fellow uh, ACLU attorneys, people on the, on the board, think when you, when you chimed in and said you'd take the case? There was nothing but respect and uh, assistance. I remember the uh, director of the legal advisory panel pulled me in the room along with the executive director and said, uh, Ken Willis, and said, look, you know, it's, you know, it's admirable you're going to volunteer to represent this guy. If he'll accept our help, we'll do it. If he doesn't, well, we offered. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you. And I said, Sure. So uh, he and I, Mr. Black and I, played telephone tag for a while, and finally uh, we made <clears throat> contact, and I explained to him that I was offering my services from the ACLU, and I explained to him that I'm African-American, and that if that made a statement he didn't want to make, I could understand that he would refuse my representation, to which he responded that... Uh, he had done some research on me, and he thought I could do a finer job as any white man. So he asked for my help. Yeah. When what was the specific uh, law that he was prosecuted under? Because I, I I understand that Virginia had a sort of different kind of intimidation law that didn't take into consideration intent. Well, it did take it into consideration, but it was sort of presumed. They they said you have to have the intent. However. Uh, just burning the cross seems to satisfy the intent. Um, there was also there was a statute right after it um, for the same thing about uh, burning a star David. Oh wow! And and what was your, what was your what was your biggest challenge in putting together that defense? Had you done anything well, like that before? No, I, I didn't even know the statute existed. Uh, when it came across my desk, I looked at it and I went, "What? What the hell is this?" And I went to the library and I pulled the statute and I thought, there's no way this could pass constitutional muster. So, um, um, I mean, it was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. And you, and you, but you lost at the trial court level. Well, the, the problem we had with the tactics of the case is that normally criminal defenses fit into three categories. Normally, it didn't happen, it did happen, and there's an explanation, or this is a bad law. Very seldomly do you assert the last one. So from the day we took the case, I mean, Mr. Black had burned a cross, and the statute says you can't burn a cross. So as far as factually, he did that which the statute forbids. So I, we, I told him from day one, and we talked about in the legal advisory panel, that um, the trick to the trial was, one, uh, try as best I can to keep him out of jail. It's a five-year statute. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, assume that he will be convicted. Try to get him, well, not guilty, but assume he is, and build a record challenging 
the constitution of the statute as uh, an, uh, an attempt to suppress content. Yeah. So, I mean... And that's what you did, right? Yes. Uh, a brilliant l- lawyer by the name of Rod, Rod Smola, S-M-O-L-L-A, who was dean of the University of Richmond Law School, uh, was the appellate guy from the panel. And he and I talked, and we talked about what kind of record he wanted, what kind of transcript he wanted. We challenged the statute at the preliminary hearing, lost. We challenged the statute pretrial, lost. Uh, he was convicted. The jury gave him only a fine. We kept him out of jail. We gave notice of appeal to the Virginia Court of Appeals, where we won and got the statute thrown out. However, the government, uh, because it's a constitutional challenge, the government has the right to appeal. So the government appealed it to the Virginia Supreme Court, where we won as well. And then the government, the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, uh, advocated or, or filed a motion for a hearing with the United States Supreme Court. And were, you, were you surprised when the Supreme Court accepted the case? Not really. We, uh, I mean, without blowing my horn, Rod Small is a real smart guy, and he, he really laid it out in such a way that it was just, I mean, for instance, the bad part about the statute is the presumption language. And we didn't even try to get that language whacked out when we argued it to the jury. We wanted that language in because we felt that language was the language that would get the statute declared unconstitutional. Yeah, and where where were you when the ruling came down? Were you in the court courtroom? When the rule? No, I wasn't. I was there uh, for the argument. I was there for the argument by uh, serendipity. I was in D.C. trying another case. Um, a couple of years later, and uh, I received word that the Supreme Court was going to hear that case that day, so I excused myself from the trial and went down and got the last available seat and sat there for the first time in my life, went in, the, went in before the, Virginia Supreme, went in for the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. Was, was this case tough for you at all to take? No, it wasn't. It was um, a number of reasons. One, as I was growing up, my mother taught me that a principle or a moral isn't really yours until it's tested. Uh, secondly, I do know from my uh, philosophical understanding of the United States Constitution that for every right or benefit that we get, there is a corresponding responsibility. By that I mean, if you want the right to speak freely, that means you have to listen to a lot of stupid crap. In fact, that means you have, if you want the right to speak freely, you have to even protect the right of others to say stupid crap. So, um, and also the First Amendment normally isn't challenged except by the extremes. By that I mean, I mean, there's never going to be a civil rights case about Barney, you know, or, or SpongeBob SquarePants. It's, it's always going to be a Malcolm X, a Klansman, uh, some group or identity, who, a, a person who is viewed as part of the radical fringe. And that is where these cases pop up. That is where the defense pops up. Mm-hmm. And this, isn't, this wasn't really a new sort of case or idea for you, the idea of you defending um, controversial speech. You'd done it before in your career, right? Yes, I have. It's uh, um, well, this speech and defendants. I mean, I was 
uh, was lead counsel on one of the defendants, a uh, member of al-Qaeda on uh, the U.S. bombing in Nairobi, Kenya. I have represented for the ACLU a number of uh, pornography cases, the dirty bookstore cases, um, students arrested for uh, uh, showing controversial movies on campus, stuff like that. So, no, it, it, I mean, it's, it's not my typical case in that I am a criminal trial lawyer. I represent people who are charged with drug dealing, murder, you know, stuff like that. Uh, this is primarily constitutional. Um, so in that way, it was different and the same. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your road to the legal profession. You mentioned you had defended uh, students who w- wanted to show movies on campus. You were uh, quite the student activist yourself, correct? Well, I certainly wasn't planning to become a lawyer. Um, in fact, I was very hesitant when I decided to go to law school because I was going to hear my mother for the rest of my life say, I told you you should have become a lawyer. <laughs> and I was, oh, God. But um, I, in the 60s, I went to an historically black school, and the Commonwealth of Virginia decided to break up some of the black schools and farm out various departments to white campuses so they could meet their uh, integration guidelines. And I was one of the students who uh, attempted to stop it, and we did. And I was expelled, um, suspended my senior year, my second semester of my senior year, and sat out for a couple of years. But The ACLU stepped in to help you out, right? That is my. That was my first interaction with the ACLU. Uh, well, I had been when I was 16. I was arrested uh, during the Nashville sit-ins, and the uh, local ACLU stepped in and represented us. So I had seen them, but I I didn't know anything about lawyers. But while sitting in federal court watching the ACLU, uh, Arthur Samuels was a lawyer, really great guy. He was trying to get the students back in, and while sitting there, I was, at that time, I was, uh, I hadn't graduated yet, because I was suspended, and I was applying to graduate school in drama, and while sitting in the courtroom watching the ACLU, I thought, this is important, and I can do this. I mean, I had to try and do this, so I decided to become a lawyer while sitting in my own trial. Yeah, and what brought you to criminal defense law, specifically? Well, like most lawyers, you don't really pick your area. It picks you. And when I was in law school my first year, I was hired by a local attorney in Houston. I went to a historically black law school. And I was doing, he, he was a general practitioner. He did personal injury, divorce, everything. And I was doing a little bit of everything, but I seemed to have a, a talent for criminal. And so he used to pay me to sit in court and watch. So I would work on cases, I would write briefs, I would go to court, I would watch, I would help pick juries. And so I just started doing it. In fact, uh, I was telling someone at coffee today, uh, when I passed the bar, I went in to see Jesse Funches, the senior partner, and I said, Jesse, oh, congratulations, you passed the bar. I said, yeah, but I, it was a Thursday. I said, I've got to get off next Wednesday because I have to go to Austin, Texas to get sworn in. He said, you can't go. I said, I can't go get sworn in. He said, you can't go Wednesday because Monday morning, um, Judge Peavy, P-E-A-V-Y, I remember it so well, is meeting you in his chambers at 8 a.m. and he's swearing you in, and at 10 o'clock you're picking a jury in the state of Texas versus Sturrock, <laughs> a case you've been working on. 
So I literally tried my first felony jury trial when I had been a lawyer for two hours. What was that? What was that case about? It was a um, an aggravated assault case. They uh, uh, he had gone to a store and they said he had uh, shoplifted a Playboy magazine. And while leaving, they they said they challenged him and that he put his right hand in his right pocket and pulled out a knife and threatened them and escaped with his playboy, and he was arrested for assault with the knife. And uh, we won the case because uh, Mr. Sturrock was a Vietnam veteran who had been injured in the war, and one of his injuries was he could not open the fingers on his right hand. He couldn't put his right hand in his wow. pocket. Wow. Have you, have you ever done any, uh, litigated any constitutional issues per se um, at the appellate level, or have you been strictly criminal? Well, actually, all criminal, all criminal law is constitutional. In fact, I was um, talking to a legislator at lunch today, the one I was telling, and, and, and there's an ancient Buddhist expression that I made up one night when I was drinking, that is that... Um, there's only one law, and that's the Constitution. All statutes are merely the ravings of politicians. So in my efforts to <clears throat> defend people charged with crimes, I've won motions to suppress. I've won motions to dismiss. I've had cases uh, where statutes have been declared unconstitutional. I remember once they, uh, for, for Richmond, used to have a city ordinance that they used for busting gays in the park that said it shall be unlawful uh, to solicit another to engage in any act which is lewd, lascivious, or wanton. And I said, Judge, this statute is unconstitutionally broad. I mean, these terms could be anything. And he said, I want to see your brief. And I said, good, because I'd like to leave. Why? Because I want to go home. Because before I left this morning, my wife Jocelyn gave me a kiss that was lewd, lascivious, and wanton. And I want to go home. So <laughs> he struck the statute. Uh -huh. So, uh, yes, I have challenged statutes before, either uh, as written or um, as interpreted. Yes, but that—that's just part and parcel of uh, criminal practice. Yeah. Speaking of judges, uh, you said some judges had some interesting things to say to you after you took the Barry Black case. What were some of those things? Oh God, I'm so proud. I was. There were some. There were some people who criticized, but there weren't that many. But among where, where did where do you think the where did the criticism mostly come from? Uh, did you well, get any the, pushback from like the NAACP or? Yeah, there was there was pushback from the NAACP of Virginia, but I, also at that time, however, I remember that uh, Julian Bond wrote a great letter to the paper in support of my position and my obligation to take this case. So I mean. That's pretty heady stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. Julian Bond. So, um, yeah, and, and sometimes I would go into a court, and you're waiting for your case to get called, and judges would say, uh, uh, Mr. Bach, I see you at the bench. And you come up, and he'd stop a trial and tell me how proud he was, or she was, that um, I took this case. Because, you see, whenever a lawyer takes a criminal case, People assume that you are condoning your client's behavior. And if your client is charged with child abuse, they think that you know, when the trial's over, you put on a, uh, a raincoat and you go to the playground. But that's not true. We're, we're protecting the law. So um, when Mr. Black was arrested for this, 
I could understand how a white, if I were a white lawyer in the western part of the state, I wouldn't have taken that case. Because people will say, oh, well, you know how David feels about the Klan now, because he's representing that, you know, sheet-wearing guy from, uh, from Pittsburgh. But that wasn't going to be true with me. No one's going to assume that I'm a closet Klansman or I have a robe in the basement. It's, it, it, by my representation, we were able to show to the world this is a First Amendment issue. It's not a Klan issue. It's not a cross-burning issue. It is a first... I'm sorry. I, 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 I apologize, by the way. I said cross-burning. If you ever meet someone and you want to know if he's a Klansman or not, say cross-burning. Because a Klansman will say, no, no, no. Burning is destruction. It's a cross-illumination. Oh, wow. I didn't know yes, that. Yes, I remember that. He, he, my client explained to me that there was no intent to destroy. It's an intent to illuminate. Wow. So if, some, if, if you say cross-burning and someone says illumination, trust me, there's a robe in the basement. <laughs> did, wow. Did, did you ever find uh, some of the attention that, that this case got problematic? Because I had read somewhere that you had thought about dropping the case at a certain point because you thought it was just getting too much attention, this, this, this black-white thing. Uh, but then you said it, that upon further reflection, you realized it was helpful because any white attorney who came and defended these guys, as you said, would be seen as a Klan sympathizer. Yeah. They would see it. They, they, the public would see that lawyer as protecting the Klan rather than protecting the First Amendment. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was important for the public. We have a tendency, we as citizens have a tendency not to understand or respect our Constitution. It's, it's wasted. In fact, uh, uh, something I used to say also when I was drinking too much, uh, Americans do not have a sense of justice, but they have a sense of injustice. Mm-hmm. And so when you take a case and you, you, you remove that clan emotion stuff and you put an African-American lawyer in there, then we go back to the issue of should anybody be allowed to say hateful things? And, um, I mean, I'm not the first African-American lawyer to represent uh, a member of the Klan. And I'm also, I mean, my co-counsel on the Al-Qaeda case in New York was Jewish. Yeah. Uh, and, the Skokie lawyers were Jewish. And we just interviewed Glenn Greenwald, who uh, is, I'm, you know. I'm in awe. He spent the early part of his legal career defending neo-Nazis, a guy by the name of Matthew Hale, uh, despite the fact that Glenn has a Jewish background and is also gay. In his defense, I must say that Glenn did not defend the neo-Nazi. He exactly, defended yeah. the American principle that says that in a true free society, every idea has to be discussed, if for no other reason than saying, that's a stupid damn idea, we ought to throw it away. But we need to discuss every idea, even neo-Nazis, because while we have a right to speak freely, that doesn't mean we have a right not to be uncomfortable by the speech of others. Mm-hmm. I mean, good speech, uh, I mean, people say things that make us uncomfortable. I say things that make people uncomfortable. I mean, anything about the Washington Redskins, you know. Uh, you know um, and that is my right. And as long as I'm not resorting to it, as long as it's not a threat of imminent bodily injury or death, we have to encourage those sorts of ideas to be discussed. Part of being an American is the obligation to listen to language that makes you uncomfortable. 
I mean, if you're going to be a citizen, if you're going to speak freely, you have to be able to tolerate bad ideas. In Brandenburg versus Ohio, uh, which was an earlier cross-burning case uh, where uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton, excellent African-American lawyer from D.C., now the representative, defended uh, the Klan in Brandenburg versus Ohio. And in that one, the Klansmen were sanctioned and arrested for saying things that, you know, blood will flow in the streets and all this and all this and all this. And, I mean, it was really vicious. And the Supreme Court came down in Brandenburg versus Ohio and said, look, you know, they can say it till the cows come home, but until somebody starts, you know, crossing the line and, 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 and applying these, bringing these threats to fruition or, or getting them close to it, it has to be protected. Mm-hmm. So, and, and uh, there's a lawyer named Griffith out of um, Galveston during the 60s, whom I've never met, but I've read some of his stuff. He, in the 60s, the state of Texas issued subpoenas to the Klan for their membership lists. And the Klan tried to find a lawyer, and they couldn't find one, so they went to the ACLU, and this lawyer, Eddie, uh, Mr. Griffith, was the um, attorney who represented him, African-American from Galveston, and ironically, he won the case by using another case where in the early 60s, the state of Georgia had demanded the NAACP turn over their membership list. And using that NAACP defense case, he protected and prevailed on the Klan membership. So, see, the, the principle applies to whatever side of the spectrum you're on. And that's a classic example, the, uh, the Galveston clan case. Mm-hmm. So that guy sounds sort of like a free speech hero to you. Do you have any, as we finish up here, do you have any other free speech heroes? Oh, I have many of them. I have um, many of them you would never know. Um, and those are the people that I like to know about. Well, I remember one thing, two things that struck me that really made my hat too small. I mean, this swelled my head. One was... My father was a war hero. My father was a Tuskegee Airman fighter pilot. Oh, wow. And they were doing a uh, photo shoot at a local school. And but for, asked, for any of our listeners here who might not be fa- fa- familiar with the Tuskegee Airmen, can you just give a quick primer on them? The Tuskegee Airmen was an experiment in World War II where, uh, due to the FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt, they decided to take African Americans and make a black fighter squadron. And the official position of the Department of the War at that time was that black people were too ignorant and cowardly to engage in combat. And for that reason, most blacks were not allowed in the infantry. They were not allowed. In, they were not allowed in any unit that had combat. They were also presumed to be too ignorant to know the complexities of, of military machines. Well, uh, FDR, under pressure from the black press, established a black training unit and uh, a black squadron. So the 99th Squadron were a group of uh, African-American men who went to training in Tuskegee. They succeeded. They became combat pilots. They went to World War II. They had an enviable record. I mean, when it comes to, for many years, it was thought they never lost a bomber to um, enemy aircraft fire because they were so dedicated and they stayed so close to it. And I've met some of them, and they had some wonderful stories. And he was, in fact, of the 20 men in his class, my father's class, four 
became pilots. I mean, the washout, the, the, the rigors were unbelievable. So he was sent over to Europe. Uh, they, at that time, you had to fly 50 combat missions before you could be rotated as a fighter pilot, 25 as a bomber pilot. Well, because the experiment of the Tuskegee Airmen was expected to fail, there weren't enough men in the pipeline. So my, my father's 50 mission, he flew 135 missions because they just weren't there. Uh-huh. And, they had, and then after he rotated back, the, the, the 99th Squadron was so successful, it was later expanded to the 99th, the 100th, the 301st, and the 302nd, and it became the 332nd Fighter Wing, which is larger, and it fought through to the end of the war. And, uh, but interestingly, uh, they were over there, and they were fighting, However, when they got on the ships to come home, there a couple of them talked about when they when the ship docked at Fort Dix in New Jersey. When they got off the ship, you know they're 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 war heroes, and they go down the gangplank, and there's a sign that says "Colored troops to the right, white troops to the left." Wow. So anyway, he was, and so they were talking to him, and they said, "Well, Colonel Bob, did you ever think when you were you know over in a war getting shot at that you'd be recognized as a you know protector of freedom?" In a segregated country, and my father said, no, uh, I just shot at people who shot at me. My son, the lawyer, does more to protect freedom in a day than I did in my career. Wow, that's quite the endorsement. And then another time, I was pumping gas on a cold night in Richmond, Virginia, and I was pumping gas. This man, young man came by, and he was in a chef's coat. And he had his girlfriend with him, and um, I'm sitting there pumping gas, and he said, uh, you had a lawyer defending the Klansman. And I said, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not going to get into a constitutional discussion. I said, that's me. <laughs> and so he told me that he admired me, and his, his uh, girlfriend or wife said, uh, um, why would you do that? And my, the, this gentleman said, no, you don't understand what Mr. Barr does. This case is just like his car. It's just another ride to work. You know, that's what he does. That's what he's supposed to do. So, um, and, and I also, I'll tell you this, that, that usually uh, it's those scary things that are the right thing to do, although this was not scary. It was interesting. Uh, it was interesting that um, I knew that my client he and I were never going to be friends, and I didn't want to be his friend. I just wanted to save him. And that one of the reasons we turned out, we were getting calls from all television shows. They wanted us to appear on stage together. And I turned them all down for two reasons. One, whenever your lawyer puts you on the news, it's for the benefit of the lawyer, not the client. And secondly, um, I told them um, that you want us to get together uh, under the chance that maybe he'll have some epiphany and think I'm wrong and we're going to have some great kumbaya moment and take a warm shower and, you know, it's going to be a Miss Daisy thing. And that's not what this case is about. You know, it's not about us liking each other. It's not about my sharing his views or, or turning him over. He has, not only does he have a right to say these things, he has a right to be a bigot. And it's my job to protect his right to be a bigot. Mm-hmm. So, no, we're not. I mean, we were getting my my answering service was so impressed. They were calling me and telling me who was 
call. Oh, I'm, I have a place up in the country where I go and hide out, and the uh, the London Times called, and they wanted to send a uh, reporter to interview me. And I said, well, that's nice, guys, but I'm not being here. I'm going up to the country and hide out. And they asked me for the address, and they sent a reporter to just outside Charlottesville to my cabin. And she got lost, and she showed up at the cabin. I ended up making her lunch. And she interviewed me for one of the London papers. So um, I remember having a conversation with an Irish lawyer. I remember talking about uh, how the Irish never had anything in their in their cuisine that I would want to eat. We had a nice discussion about fried Mars bars. Um, it was uh, I had no idea that it was going to um, jump into the media the way it did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, I think that's all the time that we have left. Uh, I'm it, sorry to be so windy. No, that's what we love. We love the stories behind these cases. I and mean, it sounds like you've got some incredible ones. And hopefully we'll be able to bring you back at some point to discuss some of those other First Amendment cases or free speech everybody, cases. Everybody has incredible stories. You just have to, every day you have an opportunity to be a, a hero. Everybody does. The question is, how do you take it? That was attorney David Ball. I recently heard an interesting story from First Amendment scholar Eugene Volokh involving Virginia B. Black during a lecture I attended in March at the museum. Volokh was telling the audience of a true story about a moot court at an unnamed top 20 law school on the Supreme Court case Alanis v. United States. For those of you unfamiliar with the Alanis case, which was decided in 2015, the court was wrestling with the question of whether a conviction of threatening another person required proof of the defendant's intent to threaten. Sound familiar? If it does, you've been paying attention, because Virginia v. Black dealt with a very similar question and was, in fact, the leading court precedent in the case and in the materials the students were to use in the moot court. Moot courts, by the way, are not real cases, but they are similar to them. Students write the briefs, argue the cases, and schools bring in judges from across the country to evaluate the students' arguments and decide the case. As Volokh explained during his lecture, moot courts aren't intended to test students' research skills, so they have a packet of precedents to work off of from the very beginning. Naturally, Virginia v. Black was in that packet. Why wouldn't it be? Well, when the moot court packet for this case was given to an administrator to review, the administrator told the students that they needed to remove references to Virginia v. Black from the packet. The students were, of course, confused by this. It's a leading precedent, they said. Why would we remove it? Well, the administrator told them, it's a case about cross-burning, and black students might be upset by the references to cross-burning in a Klan rally. They might find it triggering. They might find it distressing. But all of our cases mentioned Virginia v. Black, the students told the administrator. They talk about the facts. It's a leading precedent. Oh, yeah, the administrator told the students, you need to redact any mention of the facts from any of the other cases you assign as well. The students appealed the decision to three separate administrators, all of whom said they couldn't moot this case if the packet included references to Virginia v. Black. Not because the precedent was racist, mind you, although even if it was, it probably should have still been included in the packet, but rather because it had a fact pattern that involved racism, and the administrators thought that the black students in the school shouldn't have to be confronted with it. Talk about paternalistic and turning a blind eye to reality. But ultimately, the students prevailed upon a fifth administrator who was also a faculty member and who apparently had his or her wits about them. If this incident strikes you as outrageous, you're not alone. If the first three episodes of this podcast reveal anything, it should be that members of minority groups are not too weak to live with freedom. On the contrary, they are at the forefront 
in the fight for freedom. Despite what those administrators at that law school thought, blacks and other minorities don't need shelter from the realities of the law. As we learn today, it was a black lawyer, David Baugh, who took up the defense of the Klansmen in the very case the administrators wanted to shelter black students from. But in many ways, as followers of higher education today well know, the situation is not unique. Administrators across the country are censoring people or ideas that might be offensive or might be upsetting to students. In two weeks, we'll take up this topic and reflect upon this past school year with members of FIRE's staff. What were the biggest free speech stories this past year? The biggest wins? The most unfortunate losses? What took us by surprise? And how did this year stack up to previous years? And what do we anticipate from the next school year? If you have a question you want us to address during that show, we now have a cool call-in feature where you can ask a question by leaving a voicemail. That number is 215-315-0100. Again, if you want to call in a question for the next show, you can call in to 215-315-0100. We might just play your question on the next episode and have our guests respond to it. In closing, I want to thank both of our guests, David Baugh and Glenn Greenwald, for participating in this series on Defending My Enemy. If you want to read the book that inspired the series, please check out Arya Neurer's 1979 book, Defending My Enemy, American Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, and the Risks of Freedom. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us at so2speak at thefire.org. We are always happy to get listener feedback and entertain ideas for future shows. Thanks for listening. <laughs>